Welcome again. Uh, this week is slightly different than all other weeks in that we've actually created sermon notes for you. We actually have a, something paper that you can hold, and maybe some of you grabbed those. Um, if you don't have one, uh, you can grab one next week. Uh, they're also available online as well. You can, you can download them on the sermon webpage. Uh, the theme of our, of our series here, in Essentials Unity, the little tagline is, what sets us apart, that's what brings us together. And the purpose of our study this morning is not to make a defense of what we believe. It's not to examine the arguments. It's not to philosophize. It's not to convince those who are on the outside that the inside is better. It's simply to state quite plainly what it is that we believe. What brings us together? We've already said in this series that we are a people who has been called out. Uh, Peter said, we are called out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. And in that calling, there is, there's a separation that occurs, yes, but there is also a uniting that occurs. It's kind of like when you're out on the playground and, and, the, and the team captain, he, he calls your name or she calls your name. And, and you now step across the line, and you step out from the group, and you step into that new group, that, that team, right? And along with that team, you have a new identity. You have a new purpose. You have a new association. You have a new calling. And that is to use everything that you've got to help that team win, right? But unlike those playground games, what, what sets us, 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 apart, us apart and brings us together is not just the fact that we are, are, are now identifying with a certain team. No, our, our, now our fundamental understanding, our, our convictions, and our beliefs ab about ourselves and about each other and about the game itself have, have changed. What sets us apart brings us together. You know, there are a lot of details out there, right? There are a lot of little subtle uh, nuances when it comes to what people believe about, about life, about the origins of our existence, about morality, about ethics, about who we are, why we're here, what we're supposed to do, where we're, where we're going. And well, ultimately, everything matters. Everything matters. And everything, in, in a sense, is connected to everything else. Well, that is true. We, we need to take some things and, and put them inside a box labeled essentials. Essentials. That's because without a fundamental understanding of those things, without, a, without an affirmation of those things, everything else just kind of falls apart, doesn't it? If a captain... Team captain calls your name, then and you don't have like the most basic understanding to 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 grasp those organized sound waves that are emanating from from his or her lips. Then you're not going to know what to do. You're not going to know if do I step forward now? Do I walk over there? Am I now a part of that team? And if you don't understand that that the, the fundamentals there, well then this thing just isn't going to work. I mean, you might as well just go out to the sandbox and pick your nose, right? 
And we, we have a sandbox. It's right outside the doors there. You're welcome to it. You know, you know actually, these days, this, the sandboxes of people's lives, uh, it, it's more about um, surrendering to that hypnotic stare of the mesmerizing glow of the rectangles that we pull out of our pockets, right? <laughs> Scrolling endlessly, occasionally amused by a picture or a meme, if you're familiar with that term. We're, we give thumbs up to some things. We, we attribute like these emotive emojis to other things. We get angered when we feel that something is wrong or something that is, is offensive. And yet our actual beliefs about things that matter, the actual beliefs about things that matter tend to be kind of like this, this hodgepodge of, of disjointed and incongruent ideas that, that really don't make much sense to us. And yet we are very bold to step out and, and make statements about them, Right? As if we are somehow the, the resident uh, you know, expert on these things or the sole defender of these certain subjects. We're kind of playing in the sandbox. And yet those who have been called out have stepped out from the crowd. They've become members of, of Christ and his church, members of Bethany specifically. They've done so because they acknowledge that, well, there are a lot of things that we could discuss, and there are a lot of things that we could, we could disagree on, frankly. There are certain things that we have to put in the box, labeled essentials. We've got to agree on these things because these are the very things that bring us together. And my prayer is that, that from this day forward, that we will have as one of our treasured mottos an anthem that has been voiced by Christians for many, many, many years. And it is this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. In everything, Jesus Christ. That's good, isn't it? In the things that matter most, that are most fundamental to our faith, and without which we would find ourselves on the outside looking in of God's family, we will devote ourselves to understanding those things well, to holding on to them, to affirming them, to being united around them. In the things that the Bible leaves, leaves some room for debate on, we'll, we'll lovingly discuss those with one another. We'll even allow for some disagreement. It's okay. But in everything, in everything that we believe, in everything that we do, in everything that we think, our desire that overarches everything else, our desire should be that Jesus Christ be glorified. Amen? Amen. So let's talk about essentials this morning. Let's talk about some, the, the, the essential of essentials, God and his word. We believe in one God, not two gods, not three gods, not four, not 16 gods. There are no other gods besides the one God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. There are a whole bunch of other so-called gods. There are buckets full of pretenders, of impersonators, but they're all without merit, with any authoritative 
uh, claim to the, the title, any real ability that even holds a candle to the one and only genuine article, and that is God. And so we categorically deny the existence of a, of a plurality of gods. There's, there's no real pantheon that contains actual, living, animate, sovereign beings, not, not other than in the make-believe world. No, in the real world, there is God, and that's it. Anything else is just plain fiction. It's, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's like a, a, like a comic book characters. And so you can look at uh, the Roman gods. You can look at uh, Jupiter and Juno and Mars and Mercury and Neptune and Venus yeah, and so on. You could look at the Greek gods. You could see uh, Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite and Apollo and Ares and Artemis and so on and so forth. You could even go further back than that and you could look at the Egyptians. You realize the Egyptians had over 2,000 gods, some of whom are Amun-Ra, the hidden one, Mut, the mother goddess, Osiris, the king of the living, Anubis, the divine embalmer, that sounds grim, Ra, the god of the sun and radiance, and, and so on and so forth. We could just go on and on and on. Maybe we should do that. Should we do that? No, we probably shouldn't do that. We could look at the Philistine god of Dagon. Now, this guy was great, right? So powerful, so powerful that when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into his temple, in the middle of the night, his statue fell over and broke into pieces in homage of the one true God. We find that in 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. We could go to the gods of the Assyrians. Asher, the head of the pantheon, the Assyrian pantheon. Ishtar, the Akkadian goddess of sex, of love, of war, of justice, of political power. We could look at Nabu, god of writing and scribes. Tiamat, the sea goddess. Marduk, the Babylonian god of creation, of water, of vegetation, of judgment, and magic. <laughs> There's so many gods out there. Humanity has this tendency throughout the ages of coming up with, with just deity after deity after deity. It's, it's, it's almost like it's a hobby for humanity. And we create these things to entrust ourselves to them, to pledge our allegiance to them, to fear them, to venerate them, right? Now these days it's not quite as popular to come up with new mythological char characters. But we still worship gods of sorts, don't we? All sorts of gods, the god of technology, of science. What about the goddess of health and fitness? <laughs> or the lord of equality and inclusion and affirmation. What about the sovereign lord of self, <laughs> of fulfillment, of sensual satisfaction and pleasure? It's all about me. I look so good. <laughs> what about the god of having it all together? one I've struggled with, having it all together, or financial security. We, we have all sorts of gods, don't we? All sorts of objects or people or ideas, values that we look to to bring some sort of fulfillment, some sort of purpose, some sort of, some sort of additive to our lives to fill the holes where we realize we know that we're lacking. We don't need names to put to them, but they're there. But we, 
stubbornly refuse all of those so-called gods. We defiantly believe that there is one God, one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And that's a truth that was affirmed by Jesus. Not just something that was written way back in the Old Testament. Jesus affirms this in Mark 12, 29, as he responds to the scribes who were asking, what is the greatest commandment? And he tells them, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. There is one God. Not many gods. One God to whom we look. One God to whom we depend. One God to whom we pledge our loyalty and allegiance and obedience. Do you live your life? Do I live my life in light of that reality that there is only one God? Or do we confess our faith in God through the songs that we sing and the conversations that we have with each other. And then right away we're turning and bowing the knee to others to depend on them, to look to them to meet our needs or to make us feel whole. We believe in one God. Who is this God? What did he do? We believe in one God, the creator of all things. Before there was anything else, there was God. Nothing else existed before him. Nothing exists without him. He is the necessary source of all that there is. Now, some people will talk about this, this, this explosion, this big bang that started the, the, everything in motion. And I don't have fundamentally a real problem with that. But the problem that I do have is in where the big bang came from. Now, they say that there was the singular, almost infinitely small concentrated point of energy. At some point, way back when, billions and billions of years, at some point, this thing just exploded, spewing particles of molten matter, screaming, spinning out into, into space, and then cooling and forming the, the universe as we know it. Okay. But where did that particle come from? Had to come from somewhere, didn't it? I haven't heard a good explanation of where that thing comes from. And one of the reasons is that y y you get to a point where you've got contingent thing upon contingent thing upon contingent thing. Well, this caused this, this caused this, this caused this, this caused this. And you get to a point where you have to just say, okay, we got to stop there. We just got to say, okay, that's, that's as far as we can go. But the reality is, if you do not have a singular point, a cause, a cause that was not caused by any, any other cause, then you have this problem, you see. It's a problem that we have coined by the term infinite regress. You just keep going back further and further and further and further on into infinity. And logically, you've got to have a point where there was something and nothing else. Something had to start everything. There had to be an uncaused cause. Something or someone that started it. And my friends, that is what we believe, and intelligently so, and unashamedly so is God. Everything that is, he created 
out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the term. By his power and will, he creates everything out of nothing. And that's what Genesis 1 leads us to believe. Speaking specifically of the person Jesus Christ, God, the eternal word, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. There's something important for us to understand here. There's a distinction here between the creator and the universe, or everything that has been created. The stuff that he created and himself are not one and the same as some people believe today. When you look at the trees of the forest, or the mountains rising up through the clouds, or or the little butterflies just floating through the air, it would be a huge mistake to think that these things are all part of God. It's all part of God. This is not some silly silly avatar-esque, pantheistic science fiction film that we're living here. He may be present through it, but he is distinct from it. He was before it. He is above it. He even sustains it, according to Colossians 1.16. And he is distinct from you and I. Distinct from you. We are not God. And that's the point of all those, those he is greater than I stickers that you have seen on, on all these vehicles and on some t-shirts. They're trying to get across that idea. I'm not God. He is greater than I. Now that is an infinitely inadequate understatement. It, it, it's true though. And we believe it. There is a God. I'm not him. <laughs> I know that. I may know it a lot, not know a lot of other things, but I do know that. He is greater than I. And that means that we need to walk through life with an ever-present awareness that we don't call the shots, right? My dad used to tell uh, my brothers and I all the time, you're not running it. You're not running it, kids. You're not the maker of this world. You you didn't bring yourself into existence in this world. You don't control your world. You don't get to decide what's right and wrong in the world. And the day is coming when you're going to actually leave this world or just return to it as a pile of dust. That's exciting, isn't it? You've heard people say, it's not, it's your world. I'm just, I'm just living it, apparently, because you seem like you've got it all figured out, and it's all about you. Why do they say that? I think it's because as, as, as small and dependent as we all are, we're tempted to step up onto the pedestal. We're tempted to assert ourselves and to throw our weight around as if we are the creator rather than the created thing.
But this essential belief that there is only one God who is responsible for creating everything, including us, boy, it should shake that idea right out of us, shouldn't it? In fact, to some extent, it should give us a healthy kind of fear. A healthy kind of fear in us. Do you, do you live with a healthy kind of fear? An appropriate respect, an appropriate regard for the one who has made all things, who's made you? Do you regularly check your, your thoughts and your words and your action against the reality that every waking moment is lived coram deo? To use a Latin phrase, coram deo simply means before the face of, in full view of this all-powerful, super-intelligent, infinitely creative God. Do we, do we live our lives in that reality? There is one God. He's creator of all things. And this singularly creating God is holy and infinitely perfect and eternally existing in loving unity of three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Corey mentioned just a little bit ago the prophet Isaiah's vision. He's in the temple. He's in the presence of glory. And there are angelic beings that are specifically designed to exist in the presence, in the awesome presence of God. And they are floating beside the throne and they are shouting, calling out to one another. And what are they saying? They're saying, holy, holy, holy. The third degree of emphasis there. He is that holy. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Their, their voices, they're this never-ending testimony to the reality that God is completely separate from us. He's transcendent. He's above us. He is beyond us. He's separate from everything that is evil, and He's absolutely righteous and just and perfect in everything that he does. What should that do to us? I think that should inspire awe and trust and even a little bit of fear, especially in things that are not holy. Anything that is not holy should have awe and trust and fear. If Romans 3.23 is true, and every single one of us human beings have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, then without Christ, we are not only forbidden from God's presence, but we would be consumed by it in an instant were we to enter it. The prophet Habakkuk wrote, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. 1 Samuel 6.20 Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God. And what does he say? He says, finally, it's good to see you, God. I, I've been wanting to hang out with you. No. He says, woe to me. I'm ruined. Because that which is unholy is now in the presence of that which is holy. And we sang just a little bit ago. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, 
Early in the morning, my song shall rise to thee. Do we have any idea what we're singing? We understand the words that are coming out of our mouths and what those actually mean. You know, it's one thing to recognize those, those words as we sing those songs in church, but, but what about the rest of the time? What about when we're going through the rest of the week, when we're, we're doing our thing, when we're living our lives? Do we have any idea that this God before whom we live in Coram Deo, before the face of, that He is holy? Not only is he holy, we just read a minute ago, he is infinitely perfect. Unlike us, who are very, very un- imperfect, unlike me, there is nothing imperfect about him. No one can point to him and say, oh, you know, uh, you might want to work on that, God. You, you might, you might want to find a way to, to kind of cover that up. You don't want to show that side of yourself. No way! He is infinitely perfect. That means he can't possibly become any better than he already is. He can't grow. He can't improve. He can't try a little harder, study a little longer, learn a little more because his perfect perfection just keeps going on and on and on. There's no limit to it. And that also means that there's nothing in him that's lacking. He is completely, totally self-sufficient. You and I are constantly in need, aren't we? We're continually dependent. I mean, we need air. You take that away, we don't last very long. We need water. We shrivel up. We, we, We die. We need food. We need shelter. We need heat, gravity, Medical attention, more and more and more as we go on, right? We need, we need other people for our mental health. You separate us apart from anybody else, and we start to go insane. We, we need stimuli beyond and outside of us to help our development, don't we? To help us develop cognitively and, and even physiologically. We're needy. He needs nothing. <laughs> We're dependent. He's completely independent. We had a beginning. He's always there. And that's why when we say he eternally existed in loving unity, we're talking about this incredible, perfect being that has always been there, and he has been in this loving unity. His perfection, an element of that, is his triune nature. That it's not just him out there by himself floating in nothingness. No, he has always been in perfect relationship with the three persons that are God. Now, of course, this is really difficult for us to understand. (laughs) We can't adequately compare it to anything. We, We struggle to understand it. We can rightly understand it, but we can never fully understand it, right? Of course. Because if God is infinite, completely separate from everything else, and unlike everything else in in the main senses, it would be impossible for us finite beings to ever really fully know him. The finite cannot fully ever know the infinite, because the infinite just keeps going on and on and on and on. 
but what he has made known to us is that even though there is only one God, even though there's only one undivided nature and substance that is God, that he exists in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All fully God, and yet they're separate in personhood. <laughs> I, I've been studying this most of my life, and it still blows my mind. They're all one, and yet they all three equally exist at the same time. And we see that when Jesus was baptized, right? This is probably the, one of the clearest pictures of the Trinity operating at the same time. Jesus goes down into the water, and the Spirit is descending on him in the form of a dove. And then the Father, at that very moment, is saying, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Not one of them is more God than the other. <laughs> this is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating stuff. There's always one God that has existed from all eternity, and yet God has never been alone. <laughs> the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in perfect, loving relationship forever. And that word loving is, is, is important for us, too. 1 John 4, 8 says, Anyone who does not, know, uh, does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And so the God of the Bible, we have to conclude, is not an impersonal force. He's not merely the source of all things or the ground of all being, as Paul Tillich and, and the Buddhists would have you believe. No, God is personal and loving. And that makes a tremendous amount of difference for all of us. It's the very fact that, that fundamental to God's character is, is love that explains why he created us in the first place. And why, even though he knew from eternity past that we were going to walk away in rebellion against him, that he purposed to redeem a people for himself. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this is the love of God, in, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is such that it creates other beings that might know him, that might experience him, that might enjoy him, and be brought into that perfect loving relationship that has existed from all eternity. That's what God planned before he even created. God in his limitless knowledge and sovereign power graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. This is in the box. 
This has got to be in the box. Knowing everything, having unlimited power so that he could control everything, he planned to bring a people into that loving relationship with himself. His perfect, limitless knowledge, his power, his love, his justice, they're put on, the, on display, really, as God the Father sent the Son to carry out this plan which would bring about our salvation. And then the Spirit, God's Spirit, would, would, would transform their hearts, give them faith to believe, make them His people. Not only has He purposed to bring this people to Himself, He's, he's going to restore all of creation. We look around us, we see so many beautiful things, amazing things that God has created. We marvel at the awesome grandeur of the mountains and the powerful breaches of the humpback whales out of the sea, and we're blown away by the spectacular beauty of the sunset or the thundering roar of, of waterfalls when we're not in a season of drought, right? And at the same time, we see a world that's in turmoil. The introduction of sin into our world has had an effect on it, Romans 8.21 tells us that, that it's in bondage to corruption, to our corruption. Verse 22 says that it has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But the maker is planned and pledged not to leave it that way. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people out there who are trying to fix all the things that they see wrong with the world, and they're looking at climate, and they're looking at all these different things, and they say, oh my gosh, woe is us, what are we going to do? We have to do something. And, and to some extent, there's, there's actually a noble desire there, <laughs> albeit rather uh, self-inflated view of their own ability, <laughs> that we can fix this thing. But in the end, the real savior of the planet, <laughs> the universe, all creation, for that matter, will be God himself. He's the Savior. He is the answer to any climate change that may or may not be occurring. <laughs> Revelation 21.5 tells us, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is really good. Friends, do you see how incredible this is? In light of the awesome reality of who God is, His eternal being, His holiness, His limitless knowledge and sovereign power, in a mind-blowing move, He not only is patient with humanity, a messed up people who is constantly destroying, constantly wrecking things, He did the unthinkable in sending Jesus Christ that we might be with Him forever. I didn't ask Corey to sing that last song, that Christmas-type song. Oh, but I'm so glad he did. We need to be filled with hope, don't we? If there's ever a time in the world where we need hope, it's right now. What should all of this, all these things that we put in our box of essential items, essential things that we need to hold on to, what should that do to us? What kind of transformational impact should these things have inside of us? What kind of response should the knowledge of these things evoke from us? And how, how crazy is it that we can even know anything about these things of which we're discussing? 
the very fact that we can be clued in on what, is, what these things are about, that there is this, this, this sovereign God out there who is not just powerful and infinitely full of knowledge, but he's actually loving and wants a relationship with his people. What, this is just amazing. We can know about this? God is a God who does not merely exist. Another essential belief that we need to hold with closed fists is that God is a God who speaks. He speaks. More specifically, I don't think this is going to come up on the screen, but just listen to this. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it, should be, it is to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. It was by his spoken word that all of this got started. He speaks and it comes into existence. Out of nothing, matter materializes in time and space and took uh, motion, took hold of planets and stars and solar systems. God's speech makes his power known, doesn't it? It makes his knowledge known. It makes his immense and infinite creativity known. And what has been created, it testifies, doesn't it? It testifies, it screams out about God, that he is the designer, that there is an engineer, that there is an intelligent, orderly, good, good maker of all. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. They testify. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. All that God has made speaks. God speaks and the things that he has made speak. And they speak to the fact that he does in fact exist and that's why, were it not for the fallen hearts of us all, that scientists, every scientist, should be led by the observations that they make of their universe, of their world. They should come to the conclusion of just being completely blown away and completely in awe of the reality of their awesome creator. My daughter asked me just the other day, how do we know God exists? I said, look around you. Do you understand? I said, not just look around you, just look at this. Hold this thing out and look at this thing. Marvel at the design of this thing and realize that this is, there's purpose to this thing. And this can be used for evil. It can be used for good. There has to be a designer. You don't walk out in the desert and pick up, find a buried iPhone in the sand and you say, wow, I can't believe how long must it have taken for this thing to form? I can't believe this. It's pretty cool. No way. And this, this thing that we have, that we all have right now, temporarily, it's on loan, uh, it, it, is far more, it is far more complex than those dumb little rectangles. Far more complex. We can't make one of these. 
It doesn't, we don't, we don't have that technology. Heavens declare, creation declares, Scripture declares. What can be made known about God generally from creation is awesome. But oh, what we have in the words of Scripture. We believe that God has written down that what has been written down in those 66 books, the Old and New Testament, that that is the verbally inspired Word of God. Verbally inspired. It means it doesn't just contain ideas about God, like we can sift through this thing. Oh, we're going to find a little piece and nugget about what, what God is like. No, we hold the very words that God intended in the original manuscripts the words that he intended, given through human authors, that God led them to write down. And because they come from God, they tell the truth. They can be relied upon. They tell the truth about God. They tell the truth about the universe. They tell the truth about us, which is actually kind of a scary thing. They can be relied upon. They can be trusted. They should be. They must be obeyed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All of it. All of it is beneficial to us. All of it helps correct us. All of it helps shape us, helps transform us and equip us to be the people that God desires us to be. And not only that, but it's all that we need. We love to supplement. We love to find different resources. We love to find uh, things that, to help us make sense of, of, of stuff. And, and, and those can be helpful. But this is all we really need. It's all we need to become what God wants us to be. Apart from His creation, apart from the saving work of, of Christ, there's nothing else that speaks louder of God's glory, of His goodness, of His unfathomable love for us. We believe the Bible is God's holy, inspired, authoritative word. And because of that, we, we hold it in our hands with a sense of awe, with a sense of reverence and respect. Because of where it came from and what it is, we study it diligently. Every opportunity we have, we, we, we share it. Not, not to be all puffed up and, and preachy, just because this is, this is life-giving. This is, this is our worldview. This is, this is reality. We prayerfully examine it that we might be a people who, who believes it, who obeys it, who trusts it, who lives by it. How do we look at God's Word? We read in, in uh, John 6, there was a time when, when many people who were following Jesus around as He walked they, they had enough. They were done. After following Jesus for a little while, they decided to turn back and they walked away. And that's when Jesus turns to those who were still following him and he, he asks, do you want to go away as well? And John 6, 68 tells us that that's when Simon Peter spoke up and he answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are 
the Holy One of God. We are, or, or at least we should be, a people that thinks not very much of ourselves. How, how can we? In light of what we have been led to believe about our Maker and about our rebellion against Him, we of all people should see ourselves to be the most humble, the most unworthy, the most unholy, the most undeserving creatures in all existence. And yet, because of the truths that the one and only eternal, infinitely knowledgeable, sovereignly powerful, unbelievably loving, triune God of creation has made known to us. In light of that, we stand in awe and wonder and in the confidence that comes from the knowledge that we have been redeemed by the awesome work of Jesus Christ to be a people for his own possession. We hold fast to these essential truths. We unite together around them because they are the very truths of eternal life and they lead us to know, love, and be made right with the Holy One of God. May He be praised. Lord, we love You and we thank You for your word, which fills in the holes, Lord. We can look around at what you have made and we can be truly in awe. And we can come to the conclusion that you do exist. And we can even come to the conclusion that you are powerful, that you are knowledgeable, that you are creative, even that you are good and that you are loving as we look at order and we look at design, Lord. But your word in the 66 books of Scripture, Lord, we find, we find hope. Lord, there are so many people out there who walk through life and experience tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And it takes a toll on them. And we mourn for them, we grieve for them, probably most disturbed by the fact that they all end up in the same place. They all end up alone and with nothing, everything having been taken away. But your word, Lord, gives us hope. It is transformative. It lets us know of your great love for us. It lets us know why we experience the pain that we do experience in life and how you sent Jesus Christ to intervene that we might be rescued from our rebellion and from our wandering, might be drawn near to you and given a hope that is sure and steadfast and to know that this life is not the end and we are going to be together in eternity with you. And that all the things that we see crumbling around us, Lord, we can rest in the confidence that you are making, will make all things new. Our hope is in you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that these essential things that we speak of this morning and on into the next several weeks, Lord, that they would just fill us with life and confidence, that our faith would be strengthened, and Lord, we would be better equipped to be your people, salt and light in a dark world. 
We love you, Lord. Thank you most of all for the gift of yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.